Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 39. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, and make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness, and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness for forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And and immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, what have, you to do, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, Who is this? A new, te- a new, a new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick and were oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next town, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. This is God's word, and you may be seated. 
Good morning. You guys ready? Verse by verse through the whole book of Mark. We're going to do it. I'm just going to keep reading. No, in all seriousness, if you're new, welcome um, to Refuge Christian Fellowship. We're doing a year of reading through the Bible together. We call it the Year of Biblical Literacy. And part of that we're doing uh, on Sunday mornings, a little mini-series on different themes and different um, characters from the Bible. Uh, This month we're dedicating the whole month to just talking about the grand narrative of the Bible. Now, we believe that the Bible tells one grand story. And, and this is a meta-narrative. It's a, um, it's a way, it's a worldview, a way in which we understand what life is all about, where we came from, where life is going, how it will all end. And the Bible says that there's basically kind of six parts to that. There is the creation. We looked at that a number of weeks ago. Then there is the corruption of the creation. And then last week we looked at the people of Israel, the, the people that God carries, he, he creates in order to redeem his good world, the world that he created. And now we've come to kind of the climax of this story uh, in the person of Jesus. And the next week we'll look at the church, and then finally we'll look at the end, the new creation. So we said a few weeks ago, if Genesis 1 and 2, the creation narrative, teach us that God is king, Genesis 3 shows how humanity rejected God's kingly authority. They disobeyed God. They rebelled against him. If Genesis 1 and 2 show that the earth was created to be God's good kingdom, the place where he would dwell in harmony with humanity, it's a good place. It's filled with all the resources for life. Genesis 3 shows us how humanity rejected God, or excuse me, I'm reading my other notes. Genesis 3 shows how humans corrupted it with sin and bring it under a curse and handing their authority over to the serpent there. And this is the world we know today, the world that is filled with evil, the world that is filled with death, the world that is filled with disease, the world that is filled with all sorts of darkness that was never meant to be. If Genesis 1 and 2 show humanity created to be covenant partners with God, then Genesis 3 shows how humans rebelled and it shows um, humanity's desire to be autonomous, to decide for themselves what is right, good, beautiful, and true, bringing all sorts of chaos into God's creation. Now, Nikolai showed last week that in Genesis 3, we see the seeds of sin, And then from there on out, Genesis 4, all the way, I guess, to Malachi, like he said. Sorry about that, Nikolai. Um, You see how sin begins to just permeate everything through human rebellion, through collusion with the divine beings there in Genesis 6, also read in Deuteronomy 32. And yet, the story of the Bible is that God in his mercy is not willing to allow his creation to be given over completely to sin and to chaos and destruction. But God starts a new work, a new people through the family of Abraham. And he's going to redeem the world, not just people, but the whole world. And he's going to bring it back to what he intended it to be. And as I said, Nikolai did a great job of walking us through the history of Israel. Now, as you come to the close of the Old Testament, whether the Jewish order that ends with Chronicles, or the Christian order that ends with Malachi, the Old Testament leaves us wanting 
and waiting. Uh, I'll give you an example of this. Um, The people of Israel are filled with sin. Even after the exile, there's still sin. They've, again, taken foreign wives that are going to lead their hearts astray into idolatry. There's so much sin in Israel, and yet, like the prophet Hosea tells us, God says, Israel, I must punish you. I I have to uh, bring justice, but how can I do this to you? I love you dearly. You you are my treasured people. And so the, the Old Testament ends in this tension. God, because he is just, righteous, and holy, must punish sin, but because God is filled with great unfailing love. He cannot. He can't. And the Old Testament ends in this tension. What will God do to his people? And then we enter into this 400 years of silence where Israel's left wondering, what will God do? When will God come and deliver us from exile? Now, of course, remember, the Jews were brought back into the land. I know we haven't gotten there yet in our reading, but The Jews go to Babylon, they're punished there for 70 years, they're brought back into the land, but the exile never really ends. Though they're back in the land of Israel, though they're back even in Jerusalem and the temple is rebuilt, they're still under foreign occupation. The Medes, the Persians, the Greeks, the Seleucids, and finally the Romans. They are still without a king, they are still without a kingdom. And they're still waiting for the judgment of God on their sin, on the sin of the world, on the evil, the the justice that the Psalms and the prophets so often talk about. When God will come and he will set everything right. He will justify the righteous. He will punish the wicked. They're waiting still for the day that the nations will be delivered from slavery to the gods and the idols that they've colluded with. They're waiting for the day when the ends of the earth will come and worship the one true God. They're waiting for the end of exile. They're waiting for redemption. And I say all this because I think sometimes we don't realize that this is indeed, is is actually what the gospels are all about. Now, if I were to ask you, what's the gospel? I imagine that most of us would say, Jesus died for my sin so that when I die, I get to go to heaven you actually really can't find that um, statement in the New Testament. You can get there, and we do believe that Jesus has died for our sins personally, and yes, when we die individually, we will go to heaven, but sometimes we make it, that's all there is. That's the end of the story. Rather, the gospel is this. God is becoming king again. See, Jesus, we'll get to it, I know I'm getting ahead of myself, but Jesus steps on the scene in the Gospel of Mark, or even the Gospel of Matthew, and he says, believe the Gospel. Now, if that's Jesus died for my sins so I can go to heaven, everybody would be like, it hasn't happened yet, Jesus. How are we supposed to believe the Gospel, right? It's because that's not what the Gospel is. And, and, and please understand me when I say this. That's how we get into the Gospel, but that is not the whole of what the gospel is. The gospel is this. It's a declaration of good news, and the good news is this. God is becoming king once again. The exile is over. God is on the move, making heaven and earth one again. That's the gospel. And this is what 
the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are all about. Jesus of Nazareth is the true Israelite who restores God's kingly reign on earth as it is in heaven. Now, you really cannot grasp the meaning of the story of Jesus until you begin to see that it is, in fact, the climactic, excuse me, climatic episode of the great story of the Bible. It's the chronicle of God's work in human history. And we've been saying this, when God's good creation was marred by human rebellion and sin, God immediately sets out on this salvage mission. His, his purposes will not be thwarted. God chooses for himself Abraham, the nation of Israel, and it's through them that God is going to bring the promises to pass, that he's going to make the earth his dwelling place again. And the Bible tells us that all of this is accomplished through the work of Jesus Christ. In his life, Jesus shows us what salvation looks like. The power of God to heal and make new is vividly present in all his words and actions. In his death, Jesus accomplishes salvation. At the cross, he wages war against the powers of evil and defeats them at their own game. He takes sin, all the sin of the world, upon himself, and there he ends it. He's the sin eater. The sin killer is who he is. And finally, in his resurrection, Jesus opens the door of the new creation, and then he holds that door open and invites anyone and everyone to join him, to be part of God's kingdom, to be part of the gospel. Now, we're just going to walk through the gospel of Mark. I, I was lamenting to my dad that I decided to teach the whole story of Jesus in one Sunday. Um, I was like, you know what I want to do, Dad? I just want to sit down and have a cup of coffee with every single individual in our church. And I just want to walk them through the Bible and just show them all the ways that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, that he is the fulfillment of all the promises of God. Alas, I cannot do that. And so I'm going to do my best to just summarize some of this. But I think just here, we're going to walk through just this first section of Mark, and then we're going to jump to the end, unfortunately, very quickly. So Jesus, here's our first point. Jesus is the new beginning. Jesus is the new Israel. Jesus is the new Adam. Jesus is the new creation Jesus is the true king. This is all found in the first chapter of Mark. Now, though we often make Jesus in our own image, using him for our political and social causes, right? Ripping him from his context and the context of the rest of the Bible, the gospel writers go to great lengths to show that Jesus is not just some Jewish revolutionary that insists on throwing out the old and bringing in the new. We, right, we love Jesus. Jesus, the deconstructionist. Jesus, the revolutionary, right? Jesus, come and turn the situation upside down, right? We love that side of Jesus. We love to just plug Jesus into anything that we disagree with. But the writers of the gospel, they won't allow us to do that. Not the true Jesus, not the real Jesus. 
He's not just some random character that shows up on the scene arbitrarily doing miracles, like these random things, you know, like, whoa, check it out, I've got power, right? That's not what's going on. But sometimes we read the Gospels like that. Healing people, performing exorcisms, loving all the crazy messed up people just because, prostitutes, tax collectors, yeah, whatever, right? Just flipping things upside down, flipping tables for the heck of it, right? Every part of Jesus' life is drenched in the Old Testament. Old Testament typology, symbolism, themes, characters, prophecy, fulfillment, and the list goes on. Let me just, before we get into Mark, let me just show you how the first, how the, all four Gospels begin. So Mark, the first written of the Gospels, by the way, it's kind of like the, it's like the front paper, front page of the New York Times type of message. Doesn't talk about his birth, doesn't talk about any of that stuff, just like, here's the facts. This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark begins the story of Jesus with John the baptizer to remind us of the Old Testament prophecy of the forerunner who is to prepare the path for the king, for the Messiah. Matthew gospel turns back even further, rooting Jesus' ministry in the story of Israel that began in Abraham. For Matthew, Jesus enters history in order to complete Israel's story. In Luke, he reaches back even further and goes all the way back to Adam to show that the good news of Jesus has significance not just for the Jews, but for all of the world, all of humanity. And finally, John takes us back to the time before time to show that Jesus is the eternal, uncreated word present with God from the beginning. See, Jesus' life is drenched, saturated in the Old Testament, and you really can't understand Jesus and appreciate the fullness of his work apart from knowing and reading the Old Testament. So I just want to point out how Mark does this for us, and then we'll, we'll get into just a few other parts of the life of Jesus. So, I said Jesus is the new beginning, the new Israel, the new Adam, the new creation, the true king. Okay, here we go. Ready? So, the new beginning. The gospel of Mark starts like this. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. That is a packed statement right there, okay? So, Mark uses the words in the beginning. Have you ever heard those words before? This is the beginning. Why does he say it like that? He says it like that on purpose. Uh, My professor at uh, Western Seminary says, think of the Star Wars reboot, right? That's what's happening in the Gospels here. It's like, it's that same old story. Like, oh, wait, why is all of this so familiar to me? Oh my gosh, there's the Millennium Falcon. There it is. Oh, there's Chewbacca. There's all this stuff going on. It's because it's the reboot. We're introducing Star Wars to the next generation, right? Well, that's what's going on with the Gospels here. Mark is reintroducing the story of God and showing how Jesus fulfills the story. It's a new beginning. And it's to waken those echoes and those, God is on the move to do a new thing. And it's all happening here in Jesus. He's the new beginning to Israel's story, but also the new beginning to the whole world. Jesus is redeeming humanity's story. It's a reboot. And Jesus, the whole, the whole story of humanity is being restored. So what Mark is saying to us, if we have ears to hear, is God is taking decisive action in Jesus of Nazareth to redeem and save the world. He's the new beginning. 
Next thing, he's the new Israel and the true king. Remember we were reading in Numbers, where, and now we're in Deuteronomy, where are the children of Israel at right now in the story? Do you remember? You can, you can say it. This is taking time out of my sermon. Come on, quick, 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 quick. I'm running out of time. Okay, how many of us are reading through the, your biblical literacy? Doing it? Okay, so you do know where we are. We are in the plains of Moab. We are on the other side of the Jordan, waiting to go into the land, waiting to pass through the waters of the Jordan to enter into the promised land of God. It is so interesting that this is the exact spot that John the Baptist decides to baptize people in Israel. That's where he is. He's in the plain of Moab, in the wilderness of Jordan, baptizing the people. John's baptism, we know, as we're told, is about repentance for sin. He's the one who's preparing the way for the Messiah. John was inviting Israel to that new beginning, saying, hey, Israel, let's get back on track. Let's come back to these waters, the same waters that our ancestors passed through to enter into the land of God's promise. We need to do the same. We need to come back. We need to be washed and cleansed from our sins so that we can enter into the work that God is about to do through Messiah. It's, it's beautiful what, John's, what John does, right? What he's led by the Holy Spirit to do. Now, along comes Jesus one day, and he insists on being baptized by John. It's not found in Mark, but found in Matthew's gospel. But we, the reader, if you're a Christian, you already know that Jesus doesn't need to be cleansed of sin. He doesn't need repentance. He has no sin. So what is this all about? In and through the baptismal waters, Jesus is taking up the mantle of Israel. Again, he's taking up their story in order to fulfill and accomplish all the promises of God to Israel and to the nations. And when Jesus comes up out of the water, something radical happens. It says, just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open. We'll talk about that in a second because that's nuts, right? Sees heaven being torn open and the spirit descends on him like a dove and a voice comes from heaven You are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Now, the words, you are my son, are taken directly from Psalm 2. It's a song about God and his anointed or messianic king who will rule not only Israel, but over the nations and the ends of the earth. And the words of the Father affirm that Jesus is Israel, not just Israel, but Israel's anointed king here to inaugurate, to bring in the kingdom of God. And the Spirit is the one who will empower him to do this work. Now that's just like mind-blowing, so good. Here's another piece that's going on here. He's also the new Adam. Israel, we read in the next section that Jesus is driven by the Spirit in the wilderness. We'll come back to the torn, open heaven thing in just a second. Just bear with me. So we read that, we've read, right, that um, Grace read for us this morning. Just, I just need to calm down for a second, I think. Okay. Grace read for us that right after this, Jesus is driven by the Spirit into the wilderness. And who does he meet in the wilderness? He meets Satan. And there he's tempted 40 days and 40 nights, no food. And he beats the devil. He overcomes him. Now, Jesus is the new Adam. 
We talked about this a minute ago. Israel, through the leading of Moses, passed through the baptismal waters and went into the wilderness for 40 years on their way to the promised land. It's very significant that Jesus spends 40 days in the wilderness being tempted by Satan. But this also takes us back even further. Jesus is not only the new Israel, but he's also the new Adam, tempted not in the paradise of God, not in a garden with luscious provision all around him, but in a desolate wasteland. He has none of the provision. He has none of the promises. He has a word that he's hanging on. You are my son, and with you I am well pleased. And that word of identity, that word of purpose, that word of affirmation is the power through which Jesus overthrows the schemes of the devil. He overcomes where Adam and Eve failed. And again, he's, he's the new beginning. He's the new Israel. He's the true king. He's the new Adam. I mean, it's all here just in the first chapter of Mark. Now, Jesus is also the new creation. I said a moment ago, we'd step back to this. Mark 1.10, just as Jesus was coming out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open. Heaven is torn open. When the Bible says weird stuff, guys, make a note. It's on purpose. Like, what is that? Why does it say the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ? What, what is this weird language? Mark that. It's on purpose. Now, the Old Testament used this sort of language a few times. And whenever it's used, it, it's a moment when God is about to speak or act. And, and someone will get a glimpse into the purposes of God. So this happens in Ezekiel 1.1. The heavens are open. Ezekiel sees a vision. Uh, Isaiah has this in Isaiah 6. However, that's not heaven necessarily being torn open. That's heaven just being open. Here, though, heaven is being ripped open. And there actually is a place in Isaiah 64. Isaiah prays this prayer. He says, Oh, God, that you would rip open the heavens and come down. Lord, that you would break into history, that you would break into this world that is filled with sin, chaos, and evil, that you would redeem. Lord, that you would finish your work of making heaven and earth one again. Again, it's significant that here we have, what, heaven being torn open and the prayer of Isaiah being fulfilled. Ripped open and God says, here it is. Here's the king. Here's the son. Here is the new creation just on the cusp, about to break into the world. Mark is saying that this is happening in Jesus. In Jesus, the fabric of heaven is being torn open and God is among his people. He has torn open the heavens and come down. A, an irreversible cosmic change has taken place. Now, just like Adam and Eve, remember they were kicked out of the presence of God because of sin. Now, in and through Jesus, humanity is being brought back into the presence of God. We don't have time to look at all this this morning. As I said, you could do this for years, but John in his gospel shows us through the language that he uses that Jesus is what's talked about here. He's the dwelling place of God and humanity. He's the new temple or he's the new Eden. The place where God and humanity come together and fellowship is restored. Sin no longer bears the way to God's presence. John says in John 1.14 that the eternal word became human 
and tabernacled. Temple language. Templed among us. And we beheld his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father. Full of grace and truth. See what I'm trying to show you guys. Is that all the seeds of what happened there in the garden. At the fall. The loss of God as king. The loss of the presence of God and fellowship with God. The marring of the creation by sin. All of this is being restored in and through Jesus. And it's right here in chapter 1 of Mark. It's all throughout the Gospels. Jesus is not just some random character that you just plug and play. He is the climactic. He's the Everest of Scripture. He's the peak. He's the pinnacle. It's all pointing to him and being fulfilled in and through him. And so this is how Mark's gospel begins. The king is here, and he's about to do an incredible work. And so the next thing it says is that after John the Baptist was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. Again, that's that word gospel. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Turn and believe the good news. So Jesus is the king, the new creation, the new Israel, the new Adam, the new beginning, and now he proclaims the kingdom is here. Now, we need to kind of understand a little bit better what's going on here. The good news of God, this term good news, would have had its own significance in Jesus' day because Caesar Augustus' coming to power was also proclaimed as gospel. Okay, this is not, this is like a word that Paul and other writers of the New Testament sort of borrowed from the culture, from the Greek culture, and made it their own. But there's also deeper significance, older significance to it. So Caesar Augustus claimed to be the son of God who brought peace to the world. You think of the Pax Romana, right? It was this proclamation, peace to the nations under the rule of Caesar Augustus, the son of God. Well, the gospel writers come on the scene and they say, no, 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 no. That is not the gospel. The gospel, the good news is this. God is becoming king again. And he's going to overthrow the powers that be, the powers that rule on pain of death, the powers that rule by the sword, the powers that rule for their own well-being. God's kingdom is breaking in to earth. And this actually had an older, deeper, and richer meaning for the Jews of Jesus' time. Again, Isaiah the prophet, in chapter 52, he paints a vision of the people of Zion, uh, the people of Jerusalem, and they're watching and waiting for a messenger who's coming from Yahweh with gospel. What is the good news in this context? That their exile in Babylon is over and the judgment is complete. Listen to how Isaiah words this, how beautiful running on the mountains are the feet of those who are bringing the gospel. The ones who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God is king. Your God reigns. Listen, your watchmen lift up their voices. Together they shout for joy. When the Lord returns to Zion, They will see it with their own eyes and burst into songs of joy together. Your ruins, O Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. 
The Lord will lay bare his holy arm. You guys know that reference? The arm of the Lord? When have we seen the arm of the Lord in the Old Testament? The psalmist says, with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, the Red Sea was divided, for his love endures forever. With a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, God bore his arm, his mighty arm, and he delivered the people from Israel and from the Midianites and on and the Amalekites and so on and so forth. All the times that God bears his arm of power. Well, here it is. The Lord will bear his holy arm in the sight of all the nations and all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. So Jesus is proclaiming not just his kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, in contrast to the kingdom of Caesar, but he's declaring that that kingdom that was longed for and talked about in the Old Testament again and again and again is finally here. It's finally breaking in. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, it's this huge biblical idea uh, woven all throughout Scripture. Right? It's a packed statement for the Jew to hear that the kingdom of God was here. It was that final reign of God over the creation, all things being made new. We're talking about a healed material creation, absolute wholeness of the person, uh, well-being physically, spiritually, socially, economically. It was about the nations being brought in. It was about the removal of sin. There's so many things going on in this statement about the kingdom of God being present or the kingdom of God being established, right? It's, I love the way Tolkien words it. Everything sad will come untrue. That's what happens when God's kingdom will come to power. A new creation will break forth. And so Jesus is claiming that that kingdom is here and inviting anyone who heard it to join him and get on board with it. And then Jesus teaches the people what it looks like to live under the reign of God through his various teachings, and especially the Sermon on the Mount. We taught through this a couple months back, right? Jesus, through his parables, begins to remind Israel that God's kingdom is also about the nations, And says things like Gentiles are going to come from the ends of the earth and they're going to sit down in the kingdom with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and yet the sons of the kingdom will be thrown out. This is the upside down kingdom of God. The poor are in, the rich are out, the weak are made strong, the strong are made weak. It's a total reversal of this world. Jesus is the king who is declaring the kingdom of God and then the next thing that we see in his life is that he is showing the signs and evidence of God's kingdom. I love this, okay? So in the next section of Mark, Jesus is casting out demonic spirits. He's showing his authority over them. He's the true and rightful king that's here. Okay, gosh, getting hot and excited. and Okay, I don't have this in my notes. There's this part of the Gospels where Jesus takes 70 of his followers and he sends them out and he says... I'm giving you power, go out and, and proclaim the kingdom and cast out demons in my name, heal the sick, do all this, right? So they go out, 70 of them, this is significant. And then they come back and they give this report to Jesus. Now, 70 is significant because at the Tower of Babel, Nikolai talked about this last week, we have a table of 70 nations that are broken out, right? This is symbolic. Jesus sends his messengers out, 70 of them, to proclaim the king is here. And listen, this is what they say when they come back. Jesus, the demons are made subject to us in your name. Think about this. 
At the Tower of Babel, God handed the world, the nations, over to demonic power. We believe this. As Christians, as Bible-believing Christians, we believe this. The nations were under the power of the demonic realm. But in Jesus, the true king of the world has returned. He is going to disarm the demonic powers, and he is calling all people to allegiance to the true king. He's calling them back. And when the disciples say, in the name of Jesus, the demons shudder. The true king, the true power is on the scene. I love this. This is beautiful. Jesus begins to show his kingly kingdom of God power everywhere he goes, even to the smallest. You know, in, uh, I think it's in Matthew's gospel, it says that Peter's mother's fever is rebuked by Jesus. Diseases are rebuked. They're not part of God's original creation. And at the word of Jesus, they're removed. They, they're sent running. He also heals many various diseases, cast out more demons, healing people with leprosy and all sorts of stuff. And you probably don't even have to read the Bible to know about Jesus, that he was a miracle worker. He healed people not just once but many times with the word. Sometimes when they weren't even there, they're far away. And Jesus is just like, yeah, done, got it. They're healed. Jesus raises people back to life. He miraculously provides food in the wilderness on multiple occasions, makes delicious wine out of water, walks on water, calms the storm in the raging sea, commands fish, hundreds of them, multiple times, right into the nets, and the list goes on, right? Have you under, ever wondered why Jesus is doing all this stuff? Is it just to be like, yeah, what's up? I'm God. Recognize, right? Like, is that what's happening? Again, if you don't read the Old Testament, you won't know that these are many of the signs that Yahweh performed in the Old Testament. Yahweh fed a multitude in the wilderness with bread. Yahweh walked upon the waters, the Psalms say. It gives this poetic version of the crossing of the Red Sea where Yahweh walks across the waters and his footprints aren't even seen on it. He glides across the waters He commands the sea. Jesus is doing all the things that Yahweh did in the Old Testament because he is Yahweh on the scene. He's the God of Israel in flesh. He's also doing what the Old Testament said would happen when the true king came and God's kingdom broke into earth, that the lame would leap like a deer, the mute would speak, the blind, their eyes would be opened, they'd be given sight. He's lifting up those who are low, and he's bringing down those who are in power. Have you ever noticed how the miracles in the New Testament are never about power for the sake of power? They always relieve suffering and bring joy and wholeness. And it is because they point to the new creation. They're not just miracles for the sake of power, or for the sake of impressing the crowds. Remember, Satan tempted Jesus with that. Just show everybody all your power. No, they point forward to the new creation to restore creation when the curse of sin and all the effects of sin on the world will be removed. We often talk about miracles as being supernatural, but it's because we are living in a world under the curse of sin. Miracles like sight to the blind, the dead being raised, are actually the most natural thing in the world. They are not the suspension of the natural order, but 
according to the Bible, a restoration of the natural order because God did not make a world of sin, cancer, blindness, lameness, suffering, hunger, and death. I love this from Jurgen Moltmann. He says, when Jesus expels demons and heals the sick, he is driving out of creation the powers of destruction and is healing and restoring created beings who are hurt and sick. The lordship of God, to which the healings witness, restores creation to health. Jesus' healings are not supernatural miracles in a natural world. They are the only truly natural thing in a world that is unnatural, demonized, and wounded. The New Testament writers, especially John, refer to Jesus' miracles as signs, and that's it. That's exactly right. The miracles are signs pointing us to what is to come, a new, healed, fully restored creation under the authority of the true king. So Jesus is the true king, the new Israel, the new beginning, the new Adam, the new creation. He's declaring the kingdom of God. He is displaying the kingdom of God. And finally, Jesus has come to open up the kingdom of God to those who are barred and blocked from it. So we have to do this really quickly because I have four minutes. But from Mark chapter 1, verse 8, do yourself a favor. If you have time along with the, your biblical literacy, read through Mark It's incredible. It's just like the bullet points. It's the first gospel ever written, and it's just the bullet points on Jesus and what he did. There's none of the, like, gooey details of John and that kind of stuff. It's just like, these are the facts. This is what Jesus did. This is what he accomplished. And from Mark chapter 1 through 8, Jesus is like an unstoppable force. And it looks like the kingdom of God is going to steamroll all opposing parties. He is the messianic king that they've been waiting for, right? He's going after the Romans, the Sadducees, the Pharisees. Jesus is taking on everything everyone and the crowds love him and then all of a sudden almost out of nowhere jesus starts saying all this crazy stuff says this in mark 8 he then began this is like the 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 climax of jesus's ministry he then began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders the chief priests and the teachers of the law and that he must be killed and after three days rise again and we have multiple times where the disciples are I, like, okay, Jesus, there's a little glitch in the system. Jesus, you know, needs to see a therapist or something because these things keep popping up. What is going on, Jesus? Like, we're good. The crowds love you. You're great. Like, everything's good. Why do you keep saying this kind of stuff? Like, you're sabotaging yourself. You know, that's what I would have thought, right? But he keeps on saying this again and again and again. And there's even a point in time where Peter just says, absolutely not. That's not what's going to happen to the Messiah. Stop saying that. Do you guys remember this story? Jesus turns to Peter and he says, get behind me, Satan. You are opposed to the things of God. So what is happening here? Well, the son of man, Jesus' favorite phrase for himself, is the messianic figure in the book of Daniel. Chapter 7, verses 13 through 14. After Daniel sees this vision of the kingdoms of this world, the rulers, you know, he's looking at the Persians, the Greeks, the Seleucids, the Romans. He's looking at all this. It says that the Ancient of Days judges these kingdoms and puts them away. And it says, There before me then I saw one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power over all all nations and peoples of every language 
They worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So what hap- what's happening here is Yahweh appoints the Son of Man to rule over the nations forever and ever. And Jesus is saying that this Son of Man, the King, the Messianic figure, must first, before he inherits the nations and rules and does all this, be rejected, suffer, die, and rise again. And, and in fact, I said, Mark's gospel, Jesus says this three times, almost back to back. He keeps saying it. So again, what's going on here? Well, this is, is taking us back. It's almost like Israel forgot the story. And this is where Mark, Jesus, Jesus knows the story, and this is where Mark takes us back even further. See, before God's kingdom can truly be established, God is king, creation restored, humanity brought back into the presence and purposes of God. Sin, evil, and death must be overcome. Otherwise, no one can actually be part of God's kingdom because the poison of sin is in each of us. We are enslaved to sin and the demonic world, and we owe a debt to God. Even the nation of Israel who were meant to be the bearers of the promise, the one through which God would bless the world, they carried the law, and yet the law was too much for them, and it's like they've turned over in the road. And now all the promises of God, are it's a roadblock. They can't get through and out to the nations. And so what Jesus is going to do, you guys, is he is going to come and he is going to bear that burden of the law. He is going to come and bear the sins of the world in himself, and he's going to be crushed in doing this. It's going to kill him. The sin, the weight, the curse that he bears. We do not have time to get into all of this. But this is exactly what God said would happen in Deuteronomy, I think it's 28, that if the nation of Israel failed to follow the law, they would be cursed. And yes, that would mean blessings in this life would be removed. That would mean that in the next life they might not be part of the kingdom of God. But, but above and beyond all that, it meant this. It meant exile. You will be removed from the land. You will not be a blessing to the nations. Instead, you will be a curse and a weight to the nations. And the most obvious sign of the power and authority of the nations at that time was public execution. The most obvious sign that Israel was still under exile is that the Romans could crucify and crush anyone that stood in their way. And see, this is what Paul says in the book of Galatians, that Jesus Christ bore the curse He bore the curse of exile. The sign of exile is the cross. He bears that in his own body. Curses everyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus does this in order that the blessings promised to Abraham might come to us. All the evil, sin, rebellion, beginning with Adam and stretching all the way into day, must be dealt with. Jesus comes to remove that barrier that blocks us from the kingdom and purposes of God. At the cross, Jesus is both made a sacrifice for sin. He's a sacrificial lamb. He's the Passover lamb, shedding his precious sinless blood for our sin. And yet at the same time, he brings all the evil, darkness, and demonic power of the world into one place, and he crushes it. He puts it to death in his own body. This is the way Paul talks about it in Colossians. Remember I said a few weeks ago, he's the fox with the fleas. 
This is the coolest, like, yeah, it's the coolest story ever outside of the Bible, okay? For those of you that weren't here, because, yeah, just because, this is what happens. If a fox has fleas, a fox will go along the hedgerow. And he will collect all the wool that's been scraped off from the sheep, you know, that have been caught in the thorns or whatever. And he balls it up in his mouth. And he'll go down to the freezing cold waters and he'll begin to step into the waters. And as he does that, all the fleas crawl up his body and they end up just in that ball of wool in his mouth. And at the last moment, the fox plunges his whole body under the water and all the fleas go downstream in the ball of wool, they're washed away. See, Jesus is the ball of wool, the spotless lamb who allows the evil of the whole world to be concentrated on himself. He doesn't repay evil for evil. He doesn't overthrow the powers that be through war and bloodshed. He's the sin eater. Remember, as we were talking about a moment ago. Instead, he takes the weight of the world's evil upon himself so that the world can emerge clean. The Jews of Jesus' day did not understand what he was doing. They couldn't understand why he was dying and not fighting the powers that be, why he wasn't like David and establishing the kingdom through a bloody holy war, or like Judah Maccabee. But this is because Jesus comes to deliver us from the power behind the power, the power of sin. I mean, do you think, like, the, like, you know, when we think about, like, Rome, or we think even further back, like, do you think these people, like, start out like, I just want to murder all these people, I just want to rip open babies. I want to rape women. You know, I just want to set up a kingdom like that. Doesn't that sound great? I mean, every single one of these kingdoms and kings and rulers were after a utopia. They're thinking, I, we can do this. If we just get together, you know, and we set up these laws, we can set up heaven on earth. We can get back to Eden. And yet... There is a power behind the power. There's the power of sin. There's the power of the demonic realm that influences us and stirs up evil desires within us. And Jesus knows that. And so Jesus doesn't go after Rome. He doesn't go after the Pharisees. No, he goes after the power behind the power. The power of sin. And he becomes sin for us. And he puts sin to death in his own body. He kills it there. And he kills the power of humanity. This is what Isaiah means when he says, okay, here it is. Who would have believed that this was the mighty arm of God? Isaiah 52. We read it a moment ago. Remember that? Zion, your God is king. He has bore his arm. He's going to deliver you. He's going to set up his kingdom. And then the next chapter, Isaiah says this. Who would have believed that this was the mighty arm of God? He's not majestic. He's not beautiful. He's despised. He's rejected. He's like a man we can't stand to make eye contact with, so we hide our face from him. He is despised, and we don't think anything of him. He is wounded, though. Excuse me. But he is bearing our grief, and he is carrying our sorrow. He is wounded for our wrongdoing. He is crushed for our inner twistedness. His punishment is what will bring us peace, and by his wounds we will be healed. 
yet this is the Lord that is doing this. The Lord is crushing him. The Lord is the one that is putting him to grief and making his soul an offering for sin and guilt. See, it is in the cross that Jesus accomplishes victory over sin and the release of all humanity that were under its power. It, he's, it's the fox and the fleas. It's there that he's taking the sin of the world upon himself. I love this quote by John Stott because John Stott understood something that we need to understand, that the cross is, yes, it's the defeat of the Son of God. It's horrific. It's gut-wrenching. It's moving. And yet at the same time, it is the unrivaled victory of God. This is what he says. What looks like and indeed was the defeat of goodness by evil is also and more certainly the defeat of evil by goodness. Overcome there, he was himself overcoming. Crushed by the ruthless power of Rome, he was himself crushing the serpent's head. The victim was the victor, and the cross is still the throne from which he rules the world. My gosh, if we had more time, you guys, John 19, Jesus is crowned the king of the Jews by the Roman um, governor, right? The authority of Rome, the ruler of the world, crowns Jesus and says, hey, this is the king of the Jews. I'm going to post it in all the known languages of the world. And he hoists him up for the whole world to see. This is the king of the Jews. He is doing what Psalm 2 said would happen. God's king would be crowned and anointed and the nations would come to him and be ruled under him. The cross is a victory. The crown of thorns was a crown of glory. The cross is the throne from which he rules the world. It's, it, it's just this irony. Again, I would love to, let's just have coffee sometime because there's just so much. We could go on and on and on. And I do, I mean that. I would love to have coffee with each of you and talk to you about Jesus and the Bible and your life and my life. And... <sighs> okay, last thing I promise, and we'll close it up. The resurrection. Let's turn to John chapter 20. Now, the resurrection is this. God has done in the resurrection of Jesus what he plans to do for the whole world to make all things new. John 20 is incredible because, again, John uses this language and he's trying to, to capture our imagination and bring us back. Listen to this. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb. It's in a garden. While it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So we'll come down a little bit. Peter and John run to the tomb. The tomb's empty. They're confused. They run back. They don't know what's happening. It says, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting there where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Now listen to this, church. Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, 
Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned to him in Aramaic and proclaimed, Teacher. Jesus said, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father and your Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary went and announced this to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. Early in the morning, the first day of the week, in a garden, before the sun rises, we find a woman who's weeping, distraught over the power of death as the gardener approaches. John is telling us, you guys, he's telling us this. It is the first day of the new creation and we find ourselves again in the garden with the risen Lord. It's not Eve distraught over her sin and what it's caused. It's Mary weeping over the broken body, the death of Jesus, only to find that the Lord is risen. It's a new day. It's a new dawn. It's a new life, right? G.K. Chesterton, in his book, The Everlasting Man, he just puts it so well. He says, On the third day, the friends of Christ come at daybreak to the place found, to the place found the grave empty and the stone rolled away. In varying ways, they realize the new wonder, but even they hardly realize that the world had died in the night. What they were looking at was the first day of a new creation with a new heaven and a new earth and a semblance of the gardener, God, walked again in the garden in the cool, not of the evening, but of the dawn. It's just this beautiful picture. It's happened. God has done it. Heaven and earth are breaking in on one another and God is making all things new. John, through his descriptive language, wants us to understand that the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ has changed everything. It is a new day and a new garden with a new humanity and a new creation. All that God had wanted for Israel and for the world is coming to pass through Jesus. As Paul says, if anyone is in Jesus Christ, they are a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. And we'll talk more about what that looks like to live in Jesus as the church next week. But Closing with this, this is a quote from uh, Kevin DeYoung. I love this. He says, Jesus Christ, the son of the living God, not just another prophet, not just another rabbi, not just another wonder worker. He was the one Israel had been waiting for, the son of David and of Abraham's chosen seed, the one to deliver us from captivity, the goal of the Mosaic law, Yahweh in the flesh, the one to establish God's reign and rule, the one to heal the sick, give sight to the blind, freedom to the prisoners, and proclaim good news to the poor, the Lamb of God come to take away the sin of the world. This Jesus was the creator come to earth in the beginning of a new creation. He embodied the covenant, fulfilled the commandments, reversed the cursed. This Jesus is the Christ that God spoke of to the serpent, the Christ prefigured to Noah in the flood, the Christ promised to Abraham, the Christ prophesied through Balaam before the Moabites, the Christ guaranteed to Moses before he died, the Christ promised to David when he was king, the Christ revealed to Isaiah as a suffering servant, the Christ predicted through the prophets and prepared for through John the Baptist. This Jesus Christ is not a reflection of the current mood or the projection of our own desires. He is our Lord and God, the Father, Son, Savior of the world, and substitute for our sins, more loving, more holy, and more wonderfully terrifying than we ever thought possible. 
Jesus' life is drenched in the Old Testament because he is the fulfillment of all of it. Through the work of Jesus, God is king again. The dwelling place of God is with humanity once again. Humans are being brought back into covenant partnership with God, and the earth is being reclaimed as the kingdom of God. The exile is over. God's plan is back on track. And we'll talk about this next week, but now we actively wait as his people till he makes all things new, a new heaven and a new earth. Lord, I know that this is so much to take in, and at the same time that I have not even scratched the surface of your majesty, Jesus, of your glory, of your goodness. I pray, Lord, that we would just allow the story of Jesus, Lord, even if it's just a part that stood out to us this morning, I pray, Lord, that we would allow it to marinate. We just sit with it. Lord, now as we move towards taking the bread and the cup, We think about, Lord, the career, the life, the person of Jesus, Lord, that he did all of this to break heaven open so that we could be part of God's kingdom. He comes and he bears the sin of the world for us. That he so loved us that he washed us from our sins with his own blood. That is for us individually, whatever we have done. Not one of us are beyond that kind of love, the love of God. Lord, we pray that we would allow that truth to sink in this morning. And I pray also, Lord, that our sense of awe and wonder at Jesus and all that he is and all that he has done would just grow and grow and grow and Lord that more awe and wonder would come from our lives and a greater allegiance a greater trust would come from knowing him, from studying him, from allowing his life to marinate in our hearts and minds. Do that in us, Lord, so that we might go from here and proclaim Jesus, the light of the world, the hope of the nations, the king of all kings. Lord, now as we minister to you in worship, Lord, use us to minister to one another. Help us to walk as Jesus walked, to practice the rules and principles of the kingdom of God. We ask this in your name, amen.